We got a big broadcast to do here. This is WRUXLP Bloomington. Are you trying to kickstart your day after waking up from that 4 p.m. nap? Psst, don't worry. I get it. I'm a college student, too. Then try pouring yourself a cup of coffee and tuning that FM dial to 99.1 FM. WIUX Pure Student Radio. Yes. <laughs> Hello, listeners. I'm Noni Ford, and today our show is focused on the theme of magic and various different ways it is discussed or interpreted both in the present and in the past. Magic is a term that can be used to describe an experience or a general feeling. Our content today is wide-ranging, stemming from the world of music to the magic and folktales. From Bloom... From... Uh, I live... Live... What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington... From Indiana University in Bloomington... This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. The poet W.B. Yeats once said the world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. And so without further ado, we'll begin the show of a piece about music where producer Emily Miles takes a look at the meaning of live music. Its magic may be self-contained, but its effects are shockingly human. January 18th, 1958. Little girls in green velvet dresses and little boys trying to look like their fathers with bow ties and suspenders file into Carnegie Hall. Today's event is one in a series of New York Philharmonic Young People's Concerts under the musical direction of Leonard Bernstein. Take this piece by Chopin. Beautiful, isn't it? But what's it about? Nothing. Or take this Beethoven sonata. That's not about anything either. Or take this piece of boogie woogie. It's not about anything either. It's about notes. notes. E flats e and, and F sharps. You see, no matter how many times people tell you stories about what music means, forget them. Stories aren't what music means about, at all. Music is never about anything. Music just is. Music is notes, beautiful notes and sounds put together in such a way that we get pleasure out of listening to them. That's all there is to it. And when we ask, what does it mean? What does this piece of music mean? Then we're asking a very hard question. And that's the question we're going to try to answer today. More precisely, we're digging into the meaning of live music. I recently sat in on the junior percussion recital of IU student Christopher Turlack. This is a segment from his composition, The Pokemon Suite. Thank you. 
Now, most of us have played Pokemon, and most of us have heard marimba recordings, but to be there, in Recital Hall, with hairs wiggling in vibration, is different. Some might call it magic, and of course, there are layers to any magic. In fact, famed stage magic duo Penn and Teller say the first principle of any successful trick is to palm, to hold an object in an apparently empty hand. In other words, something is held back, hidden away, and eventually revealed. In the case of live music, it can be as simple as a voice or as complex as a song. For example, November 12th, 2015. Drake's Hotline Bling was number three on Billboard's Hot 100. Sufjan Stevens stopped in Louisville, Kentucky for his Carrie and Lowell tour. Most of the concert sounded like this. But at the end of the show, a dancing Stephanie from Full House flashed on the screen behind him, and there were those notes. just for those in attendance. Everyone stood and danced together. The meaning of that moment had transformed from hotline bling to this collective understanding of how to move. That's magic. The same thing happens at all sorts of concerts the world over. We step into a venue and our normal operational frameworks are momentarily suspended. At a thrash metal show, we can punch one another in the face and it's not malicious. It's just part of the ritual. And then, there's the healing element of live music. A study published in 1983 by the American Association for Music Therapy indicated the particular effectiveness of using live music to assist in relieving tension and promoting vigor in cancer patients. The human element inherent in live music, they said, is believed to be important. So you see, the meaning of music is in music. It's in the melodies and the rhythms and the harmonies and the way it's orchestrated, and most important of all, in the way it develops itself. All you have to know is that music has its own meanings right there for you to find inside the music itself, and you don't need any stories or any pictures to tell you what it is. If you like music at all, you'll find out the meanings for yourself just by listening to it. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles. The idea of music being connected to magic was something that not one but two of our producers had in mind. And the next piece, Hannah Boomershine, explores the magic of the occult and how it has influenced popular music. There's an isolated house that sits on the bank of the Loch Ness in Scotland. It's long and low to the ground with lots of brick chimneys, or at least it looked that way before it was damaged in a fire in 2015. The Bullskin House was built in 1760 on top of land where a church supposedly burned to the ground. 
It's said to be the site of black magic, rituals, and some rock and roll. Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page owned the Bullskin House from 1970 to 1992 because he was fascinated by one of its former owners, Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley was born in 1875 and went on to become a British writer, painter, and practitioner of magic, who had an interest in alchemy, Eastern religion, and illicit drugs. He's probably the most infamous figure in occultism. What's the occult? Well, it's a term for the supernatural. Alchemy, astrology, religion, divination, and magic all fall into this category. After cultivating an interest in magic at university, Crowley joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a British occult organization where he was trained in ceremonial magic. Crowley later went on to form a religious group of his own, Thelema, and through it he practiced ritual magic. During this time, Crowley was often called the wickedest man in the world by the popular press. He died in 1947, along with many of his magic secrets. But for some reason, his legacy resurfaced in the 70s with rock music. The occult, once just creepy, was now cool. The cover of the Beatles' 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, depicts John, Ringo, and Paul, and George, in super brightly colored military uniforms. Behind them is a collage of famous people. You can see Bob Dylan's pensive gaze near the top right, Marilyn Monroe's iconic smizing, yes, I said smizing, in the middle, and Aleister Crowley's grimace tucked in the back left. Crowley's referenced, yet again, in the work of another popular performer in the 70s. I'm closer to the golden dawn Immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery That was David Bowie's song Quicksand off his 1971 album Hunky Dory. The lyrics are, I'm closer to the golden dawn immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery. The Golden Dawn refers to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the British occult organization active in the late 18th century of which Crowley was a member. The following lyrics, Crowley's uniform of imagery, could possibly refer to the robes that Crowley wore to perform thelemic rituals. Later, in a 2004 interview with Kerry O'Brien on an Australian TV program, The 7.30 Report, Bowie attributes his interest in black magic and the occult with the drug-infused culture of the 70s. I fell into the trap of this, the black magic, uh, cabalism, and um, the whole idea of the, uh, just the Crowleyism of, uh, you know, the times. It was a significant part of that middle point of the 70s, and uh, I really got completely disoriented by all that. It was an awful, dreadful period for me.
Like I said earlier, Led Zeppelin's lead guitarist Jimmy Page had a particular interest in Crowley. Crowley's motto, Do What Thou Wilt, was written on the vinyl of Led Zeppelin's self-titled 1970 album. Led Zeppelin's fourth album also has four symbols of alchemy on it to represent each band member, another nod to ideas from the occult. Maybe what made the occult appealing to both the musicians and their fans was that it rejects cultural norms, such as the Vietnam War and the American Dream in the 1970s. Maybe it was also the thrills and the chills of the unknown. Or maybe we just like to spook ourselves a bit by imagining a world a little less mundane and a little more mystical. No matter what the reason, it's pretty significant how pervasive Crowley and the occult were and continue to be in popular music. Music by The Beatles, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, IU Jacobs student, Kyle Shart. Information gathered from Martin Booth's book, A Magic Life, The Biography of Aleister Crowley, and Wikipedia. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Hannah Boomershine. Magic can take some strange and unexpected paths. Though street magic and some currently working magicians keep magic in a formative framework, much of magic today has been ruined because of the reveal or publishing of so many books on the reveal or explanation behind popular tricks. In the past, when less known about how these particular individuals did their tricks, there was more mystery, which led to more excitement and much more guardedness about particularly lucrative tricks. In our next piece, producers Eli Contrell and Hayden Sims tell the story of a magician whose greatest illusion of all was his own identity. The enjoyment of magic derives from the suspension of disbelief, which is a term coined by poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who suggested that if you infuse a human interest and a semblance of truth into a fantastic tale, the audience will suspend their judgment for the sake of believing the unbelievable, sacrificing realism and logic for the sake of satisfaction. One day on March 23rd, 1918, in the town of London, England, a Chinese illusionist named Chung Ling Su was performing his most dangerous illusion, which he called Condemned to Death by the Boxers. In this illusion, Su's assistants would fire guns at Su, and he would appear to grab the bullets out of thin air and place them on a plate. And sometimes he would vary it and appear to be hit by the bullet and then spit it out onto the plate. But on this day, the gun malfunctioned and fired a live bullet straight into Sue's lung. At this moment, Sue spoke English in public for the first time in 18 years and said, Oh my God, something's happened, lower the curtain, and died the next morning. Chun Ling Sue, born William Ellsworth Robinson, on April 2nd, 1861, in New York, began performing magic at the age of 14 as Robinson the Man of Mystery on the vaudeville circuit. But he did not find much success. In 1896, he learned of a challenge by Chinese illusionist Ching Ling Fu, who was performing a common gimmick in which he would offer $1,000 to anyone who could duplicate his tricks. 
Robinson watched Fu when he toured the U.S. and figured out his tricks, but Fu refused to meet with him. In 1900, Robinson learned that an agent was looking for a Chinese magician to perform in Paris, and so he decided to create an act based on Ching Ling Fu's tricks, going so far as to paint his face with grease paint to darken his complexion, dressing in traditional Chinese garb, shaving his facial hair, and wearing his hair in a ponytail. He changed his stage name to Chung Ling Su and developed an elaborate backstory as an American-born son of a Scottish missionary who married a Cantonese woman. Su maintained his disguise scrupulously. He rarely spoke on stage. Su couldn't actually speak Chinese, so he would fake Chinese and have a so-called interpreter translate. His romantic partner and assistant even played Sui Sin on stage, who was supposed to be Chung Ling Su's wife. He was one of the most popular and highly paid vaudeville acts in Europe. Eventually, a feud developed between Chung Ling Su and Ching Ling Fu, who tried to expose Robinson as a fraud. However, the press was not interested in his real identity. In fact, quite a few people, especially other performers, knew or at least suspected that Chung Ling Su was not who he seemed, but they didn't care. Why did they not care? It all circles back to the willing suspension of disbelief. A year before Robinson's death, English magician Will Goldston said that the public did not question Sue's identity because, quote, he has always presented to the public that which they like and not which he might prefer. And that really is the magic of magic. The music from this segment is brought to you by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Hayden Sims. And I'm Eli Cantrell. the first half of the show. We're going to take a quick break and then come back to bring you more magical content. Here's the mid-credits. Stay tuned for the next portion of our show. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast live from WIUX 99.1 FM every Sunday at noon. This week, we asked our producers about the most magical moment they ever experienced. One time, I found a $5 bill on the ground. My family was in India, and we were walking around trying to find my aunt's house, and we couldn't find it. And then there was this cow, and we're like, let's follow the cow. And the cow literally took us right to my aunt's house, and that was really magical. Um, When I was in high school, I had an internship at an aquarium in Hawaii, and um, the guy that was in charge of me asked me if I wanted to jump and snorkel in the shark tank. And so I jumped in and immediately like tiger sharks and hammerheads and stingrays are just like rubbing themselves against me like cats. And I just remember hyperventilating in my snorkel mask. The first time I ate banana bread. So I 
got my groceries and I ran to catch the nine and I like saw it pulling out from one bus stop. And so I had to run all the way to the next bus stop. And as he was coming, he caught me halfway between the bus stops and he stopped and he let me on and there were fireflies everywhere and it was very magical. <laughs> Once I experienced love at first sight. Uh, we were filming a psychological horror short film uh, and it was late at night and we were leaving our shooting location. And in the middle of the road, there were three uh, people in black hoods standing in a triangle formation in the middle of the roads, and I swear we've been cursed ever since, so. Is that real? That's a true story. Well, I was gonna say, it's the little things. And now, back to the show. Welcome back from our mid-credits break. This is American Student Radio with Noni Ford on WIUX. And our theme this week was magic. The second portion of the show will be a little different in that it is about magic found in art forms and in folkloric tales. These pieces are more rooted in occurrences of magic in different cultures and on campus. Sometimes magic and folklore intersect with modern technology in unexpected ways. In this next piece, ASR producer Taylor Haggerty looked at how an old superstition affected construction on a national roadway in Ireland. In 1999, Ireland was pursuing construction on the national road connecting the coastal cities of Galway and Limerick. The plan was to expand the road into a bypass, allowing more traffic in the area. It seemed simple enough, until the construction was brought to a screeching halt by what some Irishmen consider to be an insurmountable obstacle, a hawthorn tree. The hawthorn tree also known as a white thorn, may, or thorn tree, grows to an average of 15 feet tall. Its branches are prickly and thick, and in the spring it bears small white flowers. Its bright red berries serve as food for small rodents and woodland creatures, and in Grecian times it was common for a bride to wear a crown of its flora on her head during the wedding ceremony. Hawthorns are a common sight, particularly around Ireland. Throughout the country, centuries of folklore will tell you that damaging or chopping down a hawthorn tree brings bad luck ranging from restless sleep to more serious ailments. In one such story, two men chop down hawthorn trees on their farmland to use as firewood. When they are haunted by nightmares that evening, one man goes to replant the tree while the other shrugs it off and goes back to sleep. Come morning, the man who replanted the tree is perfectly fine and goes to breakfast with his family. The other wakes up to find himself fully paralyzed, incapable of either movement or speech. Wishing on a hawthorn, however, can bring gifts such as fertility or good luck. Visitors often tie strips of fabric to branches of the tree to symbolize their wishes, and fences are constructed around the trunk to prevent anyone from interfering. But what is it about hawthorn trees that makes them so powerful in Irish culture? The answer, of course, is fairies. Since the tooth fairy's real, maybe other fairies are real. It had to be done by some spirits of some kind. So I believe it would be the fairies. There's no such thing as fairies. Hawthorns are seen as gathering places for fairies and similar mythical beings. When the sun sets, the mischievous creatures come out to play and play on their pranks beneath the thorny branches. In the case of the National Bypass construction, folklore experts such as Irishman Eddie Linehan 
explained that the tiny hawthorn tree was a meeting place for the fairies of Ireland's southern region, Munster, as they prepared for war with the fairies of western Connaught. Tearing down the tree would anger the tiny creatures, and they would curse the bypass forever, causing car crashes, death, and destruction. This notion of the fairies being, you know, the little Walt Disney fairies, and you know, the little sparkly things with the wand and the, the little come for your tooth and all the rest of it, that's a load of nonsense. You mess with the Irish fairies and you're dead. That soundbite is from a documentary about Lenahan made by RTE, Ireland's public broadcasting company. His story caught on and was picked up internationally by publications such as People Magazine and the New York Times Learning Network. Construction was delayed and workers rebelled, refusing to tear down the tiny tree in County Clare. In the end, the Clare County Council agreed to a contract that required them to protect the tree. It took 10 years, but the bypass was finally completed after rerouting it around the hawthorn tree. The tree is now surrounded by a fence that prevents anyone from coming within 5 meters. Superstition and magic bring to mind images of the past, before electricity and modern technology existed. But in Ireland, just as in many other places around the world, magic retains a quiet hold on even the most level-headed people. And in the case of fairies and hawthorn trees, perhaps it is better to be safe than sorry. The music used in this piece was created by Slanta and Lee Matterford under Creative Commons. Reporting for American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Taylor Haggerty. For most of us, our first experience with magic was the Harry Potter book series or the Disney Channel original movie Halloween Town. So we decided to dive into the realm of magic, the kind that scares people but also fascinates them at the same time. Producer Catherine De La Rosa tapped into the world of internet witchcraft and performed a spell. No one in American student radio had ever practiced magic until Saturday before the election, when I used producer Abby Gibson's kitchen to cast an employment spell. How did you find this spell again? I I googled free spells. It wasn't my first choice. My dearest wish was to brew the Athame Revenge Elixir from the same website, mainly because it had elixir in the name and it made me think of... I don't expect many of you to appreciate the subtle science and exact art that is potion making. I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. But that didn't work out for a couple of reasons. Like the most fun is a revenge one, but I don't have anyone I want to have vengeance on. And also, you have to like name them, and I think that naming someone you want revenge on on the radio is like a bad thing to do. I don't want any negative spells conducted in my household. I'm, I'm trying to bring positivity. Okay. It also required that I purchase a witch blade that I saw in the price range of $70 and up. I would have used my Swiss knife anyway because I'm on a budget. The budget of unemployment. So why are you casting this spell today? Because I have no fear of magic and um, or God, if God's real. I feel like as a confirmed Catholic, this is definitely like grounds for excommunication. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. All practices of magic or sorcery by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service and have a supernatural power over others, even if this were for the sake of restoring their health, are gravely contrary to the virtue of religion. These practices are even more to be condemned when accompanied by the intention of harming someone or when they have recourse to the intervention of demons. But 
I don't care what the church says. And a weird part of me does believe in this. Like, I feel like I sound condescending, but, like, I I want it to happen. I want to be employed. (laughs) Like, do you kind of believe it's going to work, like, in your, like, hindbrain? No, I don't kind of believe it will, but if 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 it does, if I do get a job as the thing I specify once I do this film. I won't say that it was not, I won't say it was coincidence. (laughs) The instructions called for a thick green candle. I I have a thick green candle. Smells like a Christmas tree. Incense related to employment like bergamot or bay leaf. I can light some sticks on fire. And oil related to employment such as bergamot, rosemary, or bay leaf. Can we use canola oil? Yeah. Okay, complete your spell by saying this spell three times, all except the last line, which should not be, which should be said once at the end of your spell casting. So it's like, the Agnes Day in church. Okay. And it's, it's real long. It's like five lines long. There's a blank for me to put stable job as of whatever I want to be. And they say any questions regarding this spell are welcomed. It was, this is an article contributed by someone named Tanya. She says blessed be. Thanks, Tanya. The first thing I did was carve her name onto the candle. Okay, which candle do you think we should use? We have one that's slightly larger, but they're both thick. I don't like the idea of it being glittery. I feel like oh. that might contaminate the magic. May the peace and joy of the holidays be with you. From Yankee Candle, or the other one is called um, Aunt Sadie's Tree in a Can. <laughs> Wait, what does it say? Carve your name on the candles, just anywhere. Okay. Yeah, okay, so if you have bobby pin which i'm pulling out from my hair right now whoa just go right to town okay we're running my name which is how many letters are in my name a bunch it's gonna take a while hold on just your initials oh i can do that let's do that the first instruction was actually to consecrate the candle and charge it with your intentions by visualizing your need for a job all right so i need to pause yes look at the candle yeah. think really hard It's not really, like, imagination, because I do need a job. Like, I'm, there's no visualizing going on. It's just me and my current lived experience needing a job. So I feel like the candle and I know this. <laughs> okay. So now that the candle and you both know this, um, what's the next step? Um, I think we went backwards. You're spo- <laughs> now I'm supposed to carve my name, but, you know. We just did some preparation. It's okay. The next step was to carve your name, but then it was to anoint the candle with the oil of my choice, which was... 100% pure canola oil. Market pantry. This is That's the Target store brand, right? Um, but I don't want to put it on the candle, because I think, like... That could be bad. Yeah. So <laughs> We're going to put it right next to the candle in its okay. bottle. Okay. As someone who's experienced several sacraments in the Catholic Church, anointment with oil usually happens with like your thumb and they draw a cross on you but i feel like because this is you know magic we shouldn't bring that (laughs) into this so i don't know what they mean by anointment but it's it's near the candle which is all that matters then it was time to light the candle and incense we do not have incense but we have this thing of tea What, what kind of tea is this um hold on Miriam, what kind of tea is this black tea um but it has bergamot in it the casting instructions next told me to focus on the flame of the candle visualizing myself already in possession of the job i wanted okay, i have some matches here so have you ever are you a match professional or do you want me to light it i've always wanted to light a match because in 
church we always use lighters and it wasn't magical so uh you just you just do it yeah, right um i can get a good grip on it good grip yeah we, we can figure it out okay we have to give us more force yeah, oh holy damn oh we can't have that on the thing hello hello oh oh it's burning my face <laughs> I have the spirit fire, actually, I'll confess, because um, I went to a, my maternal grandmother's funeral, and it was a Filipino funeral. Everyone, even me, the youngest three-year-old, had a candle, and I burned, I stuck my entire hand on it, and now I'm afraid of fire, and that's why I'm bad at cooking. Okay, so I'm completing the spell by saying this spell three times, all except the last line, which should be said once at the end of your spell casting. So, here we go. I call upon the universe to help me find a stable job as a nonprofit theater company literary manager. <laughs> I need it to pay well enough to pay my bills and other living expense, with maybe a little left over for fun. <laughs> Let me work in harmony and be treated fairly with all other employed others employed there. May they accept me as I am and may I accept them as they are. I humbly ask for this to come to fruition as soon as possible. That's the end of the thing, and then I repeat it twice. So, I call upon the universe to help me. And may I accept them as they are? I humbly ask for this to come to, to fruition as soon as possible. So, mote it be. And that's the end. So, do you feel different? Do I feel different? I kind of burn my finger a bit, but like not visibly. <laughs> so, I don't know. You're talking about a lot about your religion. So, is it? Do you feel like the magic that you've experienced just right now is kind of similar to what you've experienced in church? It's similar in that there's smoke in your eyes and if you open your mouth on your tongue and you're reciting something that's very repetitive. Uh, For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Catherine Delarosa. In our final piece for this magic show, I interviewed my acting instructor to talk more of her about her brushes of magic on the stage. She not only talked about her own experiences, but also illuminated the process of getting into character and the relationship with the craft of acting that many people in her field must manage and wrestle with throughout their artistic lives. There is magic in everything creative. It is an intangible thing that you know when you see it or even feel it. It can be found in pages, heard through records, and for many, experienced in real time. Theater is a form of this magic, being a part of the collective experience of magic in today's culture. I got to interview Tara Trezano, an MFA theater major and my former acting instructor, about her career and her encounters with the magic of theater. I conducted this interview fresh off of her run of the play Vanya, Sonia, Masha, and Spike. How long have you been acting, and uh, what was your first major role? Okay, so technically speaking, I guess I've been acting since I was five, because I was in some hokey-dokey acting classes for, like, a really long time. Um, and uh, I guess when I officially started was undergrad, so around 1998. It's a really long time ago. Don't know how to do math, but there it is. And I did my BA program in acting, completed that, and um, then took some time off, did uh, professional work in DC and Atlanta and West Virginia and um, Philadelphia. And then decided to go back to school, um, 
to get my graduate degree in acting, um, and now I am at Indiana University. So I guess all in all, since I was five, which was 1985, which is a really long time ago, um, I guess it's the only thing I've really stuck with for so long. Um, I mean, in a way, it's sort of like destiny, because if you do something when you're five and you commit to it from then on, you really can't imagine doing anything else. My favorite role would have would be um, Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. I really enjoyed that. I got to do that this summer um, at Indiana University Summer Theater and um, worked with a really fine cast of actors and um, just had a, a blast. It's not the deepest role I've ever played, but um, it was very fun. <laughs> I mean, and speaking of the magical elements that we talk about with theater, it just, that show is all about magic. And, you know, you, as the actor, you're creating this uh, imaginary world that the audience can see and in their head, and it's not even there in the set necessarily. And you have to do that with uh, Shakespeare's language to create all those images. Um, and... That's kind of magical in a way, you know, the skills of being able to take the spoken word and put images in an audience's mind um, and believe it yourself that you have magical powers like Puck has abilities and he's not human. Was there ever a moment or a scene in your um, career where you remember actually kind of losing yourself a bit in the role you were playing where you actually kind of like, whoa just go there um yeah that happens a lot to me actually I really identify strongly with all the roles that I play um it's kind of it's very important to me that I do lose myself um I would say the most recent example of that is probably when I was in Occupants and I played Alma um and people who saw me in the show said they didn't even know it was me like they swore it was someone else um so that was that was really like an example of just, I don't even think there was any Tara left at that point um, in that role. And I think there were moments where, I mean, it's a very emotional role and I felt like, you know, I maybe got carried away, but I was able to at least get it back on track. But there were, I mean, there were times where I just would start crying all of a sudden and I didn't expect to. And uh, that was, that was tricky. But um, I mean, it was a moment that at least it, it's not weird if Alma cries, but that kind of thing where I was taken with an emotion that I was not expecting, um, that was, you know, and then you have to go off stage and then wipe all your tears away and come back in and be, be uh, changed all of a sudden, you know. So th these things happen, yeah. It happened a lot on that production. You know, part of the magic of theater is that we're creating this world. It's temporary. It's there for, well, that show was almost three hours. So, you know, that's an experience. And then it's over. That's it. We don't have a record of it. It's only in your mind. Um, and it's ethereal. So for some people, um, they can tell by page 10 of a script or... Um, if they like meet the director and they feel like they have a connection to them, they kind of just tell like, oh, this is going to be a good role. This is going to be a good script or a good experience. Um, do you have anything like that that you can tell from like before you pick a production or anything like that? Um, good question. All right. So just in general, I'm not at the stage of my career where I pick anything. So 
I end up a lot of times growing to love a script that maybe I wasn't sure about at first. But let's just say, hypothetically, there have been some moments where that lined up. Um, just in general, I love Shakespeare, so I usually know if someone says, hey, I want you to be in King Lear, I'm super excited going into it because I know what that means. Um, let's take Vanya, Sonia, and Masha and Spike, which is um, a newer play, and, uh, you know, I was cast in it. I could have been cast in Lunasa, I could have been cast in Exonerated, but I got you know, that was my assignment. Um, so I get this script and I actually had seen the show in Atlanta before. And yeah, Durang's play really grabbed me right off the bat. I mean, it's, it's interesting. This, uh, this odd, um, uh, brother sister combo adopted sister pining after her brother, hoping that he marries her because she doesn't want to be alone. And then cup throwing about one page in uh, I mean, you know, you had me at breaking cups, you know, so, <laughs> so yeah, it was really, uh, really into it. And, um, but yeah, it's, I would like to, it, well, I do my own projects. This is another thing. So in the spring, I'm collaborating with, um, some of the professors here to do, um, a play called My Children, My Africa, which is a, a, a just a fantastic script. And, uh, that's a play that I am choosing to do and no nobody's like oh you know um you have to do this other play instead that is going to be my project um so those situations um I have a handful of plays that I've always wanted to do and I'm willing to self-produce and you know maybe pay for rights or do whatever to make it happen so that is something that I do too as well yeah. um along with that kind of I know that sometimes um when you are an actress um there's different roles that you play in different productions, especially Shakespeare, because you usually do that a couple of times in your career. And so I was wondering also if there's any parts that you've come back to or whatever or things that you've um, done where it's interesting because maybe the first time around you played a totally a different character in the production and changing your perspective of what you had done originally or even changing the viewpoint that you had originally from a play. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the story I'm going to share is kind of, kind of a funny one. Um, where that happened. I was in a tour of James and the Giant Peach by Raul Dell. Um, and uh, that was, it was out of Georgia Ensemble Theater's company um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And I played Ladybug. So we did one tour of it. It was fine, you know. And then the second time I did the tour, I played Ladybug again. And it was completely different the way that I did it. Um, and much better. And so I find that a second time, a second go of it is usually great, regardless of the situation and regardless of how brilliant you thought you were the first time. Because I kind of feel like what happens is that stepping away from it and evaluating it even more and deeper and asking yourself more questions, like what happens is, is that there's a breakthrough and that the second time around it's even better as opposed to regressing. And I think it's kind of cool also seeing yourself or being like, not necessarily um, relating to a character, yeah. but just having more emotional depth later yeah. on in your life. Yeah, and uh, yeah, getting there with the emotional depth is, um, it's a, 
long-winded experience. Sometimes it can be quick if you identify quickly, like on a deep level, you're like, I get this person's struggle immediately. Um, when that happens, that's, that's uh, magical for the actor. <laughs> that is amazing. So, but, but a lot of times it is different because, um, you know, people aren't writing plays about my life. So there is, you know, I try to find that, that, that kernel that like, what is the essential struggle that this person's having how can I break it down to what I've been through and I mean I've been I've been lucky in being able to do that I mean I'm kind of a tortured soul so I think that helps <laughs> helps acting um you know so pain is something I understand and uh you know Alma had a lot of pain Sonia had a lot of pain and um so that was easy to relate to um but but I'll have more pain 30 coming years we, yeah coming out the road it's for you. yeah right so I mean like I'll only be better true <laughs> if anything's true. guaranteed the life of pain is coming so oh, man, yeah that's yeah. so sad it's like, so right? true <laughs> right well it's a good I'm in the arts so well yeah I can uh, I can it's a, it, well sometimes also I people tell me about this and I think I felt it at least once where sometimes you don't really get something or you don't it's not that you don't get the story it's that you don't get the emotional level this person is on and then sometimes you'll I don't know I guess people are like they'll do a scene or they'll realign or they'll do whatever to get into the role and then like just randomly that's when it clicks and they have no idea why it was yeah. then or why it took them that long <laughs> um, um, and then they'll be like wait oh yeah and like it, it will everything will kind of line up immediately um, it's releasing the pressure of the head and the intellect to have any involvement in that and whatever's going on so you react from your gut and impulsively it's this uh, intuition it's just this like sixth sense it's this feeling outside of rational thought and that's what you have to kind of grab onto and it has no explanation so do you believe that there is magic in theater i do uh i I think that there's magic, but there's also technique. And I think that anybody who wants to get into theater know that both is going to be a part both are going to be a part of your life. So that don't feel intimidated. Like if you want to act, you don't feel like, oh, it's something that's so beyond my reach, I'll never understand it. Because I think that we all have that ability. It just it's untapped, you know, we gotta release it. And so um, so yes, there is a mysticism and a magic in the sense it's that extra special sauce on top of what we already do. Um, but that's, I think, part of art in general um, and the imagination and being open to all of our senses, which is magical because we get stuck in our head a lot, especially um, in academia. It's easy when we write a lot of papers, read, and it's just it's very intellectual. And, and so accessing the, the mysticism of the sixth sense and like our intuition um, is is a part of what actors have to do on some level. Yeah. And trust. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of magic in that, I think, too. Yeah, yeah, trusting yourself is huge. Trusting other people on stage, trusting your director, trusting everybody on the project. Yeah, it's uh, um, an important part of what we have to do. And, uh, yeah, it takes a leap of faith. Trusting yourself can be the hardest part. You know, you get a lot of feedback. 
not everybody's going to be on. It's a subjective industry. So some people view what you're doing as magical and, and awesome. And some people are like, oh, God, I don't know what I'm looking at. So, you know, that's just, <laughs> hey, that's just life. I mean, so, <laughs> that's why I say it's not, this career is tough. I mean, you got to take some beatings, you know. But you have to still believe in yourself. Yeah, you, I mean, you have to. I agree. Well, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For American Student Radio, this is Noni. Well, that's the end of our show for today. Please tune in on Sunday at noon for future shows produced by us on WLUX. I'm Noni Ford, and this has been American Student Radio in Bloomington. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 